We stopped at verse 12 of 2 Samuel chapter 15. And uh, just to kind of recap things a little bit, uh, King David, his son by the name of Absalom, has led a rebellion against his father in order to overthrow him as the king of Israel. And uh, more than to overthrow him as king, but also to kill him in order to take that position. He has uh, one who has joined him in his rebellion against his father is a man that's going to play very prominently in the section of scripture that we read tonight. A man by the name of Ahithophel. And Ahithophel at one time was a very, very close friend of David. Uh, he was one of David's uh, closest counselors. They were very, very uh, intimate in terms of their relationship with one another, a mutual love for the Lord, the things of the Lord, and a mutual dependence on one another in God's calling upon their lives. But when David committed adultery with Bathsheba, we know from the genealogies of the Old Testament that Bathsheba was Ahithophel's granddaughter. So this sin was not only a sin against Bathsheba, it was not only a sin against Israel, but Ahithophel considered it to be, uh, rightfully so, a sin against him and against his whole family. This event of David's adultery with Bathsheba occurred when he was about 50 years old. And where we are now in the life of David, he's about 60 years old. So 10 years have gone by between the time of David's sin and this season where Ithophel is going to endeavor to take his own vengeance out upon David for what he had done to his granddaughter and then also subsequently arranging for the death of her husband, Uriah the Hittite. So it gives you a little bit of a sense of what's going on here. During that 10 years, it took a year, but during that 10 years, God had confronted David with his sin. Uh, David uh, did pay and would pay a, a terrible price for his sin all the days of his life. He would never forget the greatness of his fall, how it had marred and, and his uh, great legacy. And but God also knew what Ahithophel did not know, because apparently he didn't bother to find out, is that David had confessed his sin to God. He had repented of that sin. And whatever happened between God and David was satisfactory enough to God that God allowed David to continue as the king of Israel. And Ahithophel now in his bitterness against David he doesn't feel that David should continue as king, so he is joining this rebellion against David, and he's going to try and help Absalom overthrow his father. The problem is, is that his bitterness now puts him on the wrong side of God. God has wants David to continue to be the king of Israel for his reasons and his purposes. And now this bitterness is going to drive him now to be on the wrong side of God's grace, on the wrong side of God's choosing. And Ahithophel is going to pay a great, great price for it. I personally, you don't have to take it as scripture. I personally believe that David, because of Psalm 32 and because of Psalm 51, that describe his, his sorrow for his sin, his repentance of his sin. I believe that David, and you read about the brokenness in those two Psalms, uh, this news of David's uh, adultery with Bathsheba and all that happened, it became common news in, in Israel. God had exposed him, and it was probably a very poorly kept secret to begin with. But as David made things right with the Lord and, uh, and did you know, the best that he could now to walk with God and make things right following his sin and address the consequences, I personally have little doubt that David then approached those that he had sinned against in all of this and uh, probably did approach Ahithophel in an attempt to reconcile what had happened here and ask for forgiveness for what he had done to his family. Uh, it would seem that that would be like God to require that of David in order for him to continue as a king. In the New Testament, the Bible teaches that when we sin, uh, there are a couple of things that we need to do after we've repented of our sin. Number one, we need to confess our sin to God and ask for his forgiveness. 
And then number two, the Bible declares that we need to confess our sin to significant others that we've sinned against, people that have been affected by our sin, and, uh, and ask for their forgiveness related to the situation. Because as we confess our sin and ask for forgiveness, and, and uh, what it does is it releases that person from the bitterness that they hold. At least it gives them an opportunity to do that when we've taken that step in an attempt to reconcile. So I personally believe he attempted to do that and uh, Ahithophel really wasn't going to have any part of it. Whether it was David did that or not doesn't have any bearing uh, on the account. Ahithophel really does find himself up against God here and, uh, and, and God is going to flex his right arm and, and uh, David is going to survive and Ahithophel is not in all of this. Now a messenger came, verse 13, to David while he's in the city of Jerusalem saying the hearts of the men uh, are with Israel. So David, get, this is the first moment in time that he gets word that his son has, has just launched a rebellion against him. Remember, Absalom launched this rebellion in the city of Hebron, some miles south of Jerusalem. So now some messenger loyal to David uh, comes running, huffing and puffing, probably from the point of the, where the coup originated, runs into Jerusalem knowing that David and his entire family is in jeopardy at this point and uh, informs him of, of this revolt that has occurred. Uh, David is caught completely by surprise. So he is either unaware of the selfish ambition of Absalom, his son, related to the crown, or he knew that there was that ambition, ambition in his son, but uh, didn't think that it would amount to anything. David's reaction, he said to all of his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise, let us flee, or we shall not escape from uh, Absalom. Let's make haste to depart, lest he overtake us suddenly and bring disaster upon us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. David immediately, as any king would have in the ancient world, recognized the seriousness of this situation. When one man would overthrow another man for the kingdom, they didn't, they weren't just, they were interested in power, but they knew how to secure power, to achieve power and then to secure power. And one of the ways you held on to power is you killed the former king and you killed every blood relative of that king. So David realizes this is a big deal. His son isn't just after the crown, but for him to take this kind of a stand, he's going to be willing to kill me, kill all of my children, kill my wives, do whatever he has to do in order to fully secure this crown. So he realizes that his life, all of his family members are in danger right now. So he flees in order to uh, to get away from the immediate uh, physical danger that it poses to him. And then, again, there is so much that's commendable about David and all of this. He decides that he is not going to uh, make his defense against his son in the city of Jerusalem. In other words, he wasn't going to take men that were loyal to him, turn this into a fortress, and cause a lot of innocent people to be caught in the crossfire of this personal war between him and his son and innocent blood being shed. So he wants to spare this city. Remember, he was involved in the conquering of the city and making it the, the capital of, of Israel. So his great love for the city, great, great love for the people. Absalom will do anything in order to accomplish power. David looks at it and says, I'm not going to do anything that's going to risk uh, unnecessary shedding of blood. And so he vacates the city. It was probably very good strategically because if he had been caught in a walled city, which is what Jerusalem was, then he would have been trapped with his men and, uh, and, and probably uh, killed. But God is in charge of the whole situation, and so David makes the choice. And the king's servants said to the king, We are your servants, ready to do whatever my lord the king commands. And so uh, here is this uh, loyalty, this expression of loyalty that is uh, made uh, to David here. These uh, servants that have been with him, we're going to see the 600 in, uh, let's see, just verse 18. Well, why don't we talk about them there? All right. So they make this vow of loyalty to him. And then the king went 
out with all of his household after him. They flee the palace. But he left ten women, concubines, uh, to keep the house. And so David leaves these ten concubines. They're kind of second wives. This is all wrong on David's part. But that's the way things were at that time in his, in his life. And so he leaves them there to keep the house. To David's credit, he never dreamed that Absalom would do what Absalom is ultimately going to do with these ten and that he's going to rape all ten of them in order to humiliate his father. And uh, so he wouldn't dream that any Jew would do that to ten women, much less the son that he had raised would do this. Again, it exposes Absalom. Absalom is dissatisfied with his father. He's bitter against how his father has handled uh, the rape of his uh, Absalom's sister Tamar and all. And yet Absalom, as we see here, his reason for gaining power is, is, is the king and all. is not because he's a noble man or a great man. Those were all excuses. His father's failings uh, to justify his own sinfulness. And he realized when he killed Amnon for raping his his sister, and then he proceeds to rape these ten, that he was ten times worse than the brother he killed for raping. And so there's, there is really nothing uh, uh, about Absalom uh, to like. But all that is, is going to happen. And so the king went out of the city of Jerusalem, all of the people with him, and they stopped at the outskirts of, of the old city of David, Jerusalem. And then all of his servants passed before him, all the Cherethites, all the Pelethites, all the Gittites. And the, this is David's personal bodyguard. In the ancient world, when you would have kind of your secret service as a king to defend you, you would not use uh, people from your nation because they'd be too easy to bribe. They'd be too easy to take sides on a situation like David finds himself in the middle of. So they would basically hire mercenaries, uh, Green Beret, Navy SEAL, from other nations who were unbribable on the basis of politics and make them uh, your uh, your bodyguard, personal bodyguard. And so this personal bodyguard that had been with David for decades, they remained loyal to him and all, uh, and all the Gittites, 600 men who had followed him from Gath passed before the king. And so these 600 men that had been with David uh, since the time that he had fled from Saul decades earlier, uh, long before he had ever become the king during that 10-year period of cold nights and living in caves and all of these uh, kind of hardships. They had seen and recognized leadership in David, godliness in David, uh, some a kind of man that was worthy of, of following in life as it relates to the things of God. And these 600, they continued to be uh, uh, faithful and loyal to David. And you can imagine what that loyalty must have meant to him at a time where I mean, everybody, you don't know who your friend is. You don't know who your your foe is. And that's really kind of the silver lining in a time like this. Nobody really likes to be in a season like this. But it's the regular portion of leaders. There's no getting around it on a national level, historically in a church. It's just the way that it goes on any given day. Anything can go sideways on you. And and so but the. So the one silver lining of a gigantic rebellion that hits and you didn't see it coming is that it's at a time like that that you really learn who your friends are. Because at that point in time, everybody who is standing with David is running a risk for doing so. Because in expressing their loyalty to David, the idea is if Absalom ever kills David, they're next on the lunch menu. They would be killed as well as a, as a threat to maybe the stability of the kingdom under the new king. So this was very risky business for these men. And, but they were loyal and, and uh, uh, loyal friends are especially valued in seasons like this and sometimes Friends are more faithful than family. They certainly were at this point in, in David's life. And so they commit to David when everything looks completely lost, when there is nothing, there's no reason, there's no financial gain, there's no hope for the future uh, for, 
committing to him. These are principled men, uh, principled women. It's, the issue for them is not, will I be rich? Who should I, what side should I get on? Who's going to win here? What kind of position can I have? There's none of that kind of negotiation. There's none of that in their thinking. For, for them, it's all, who's right? Who's wrong here? What's the right thing to do? What's the wrong thing to do here? What is, what is God doing here? Who has God made the king of Israel? God has made David the king of Israel. And they side on the side of God and on the side of righteousness. We need principled men and women today. The body of Christ and in the United States of America. People that will make their decisions on the basis of right and wrong. The basis of loyalty toward God, toward his servants, toward righteousness. And not be worrying about whether they can get a hold of $5 million and put it in a Swiss bank account and then flee the country after it sinks because of, of the craziness. These are wonderful, wonderful men that stay loyal to David. And then the king, is re- he's just talking about those that stayed loyal to, to David, his friends in the middle of this mess. Then the king said to Etai, the Gittite, who was also fleeing with him from Jerusalem. He's a, he's a Gentile. He's not a Jew. He said, why are you going with us? Return and remain with the king, for you're a foreigner and also an exile from your own place. In fact, you came only yesterday. Should I make you wander up and down with us today since I go where I, since I go, I know not where. Return, take your brethren back. Mercy and truth be with you. Now, this guy, I don't know how many of you read The Born Loser in the comics. This guy's got to feel like The Born Loser at this point. He just came to Jerusalem under the extension of hospitality on the part of David toward him just the day before. He has probably fled a similar situation in his own country like the one David is facing under Absalom. And so here he comes, he, he jumps out of the frying pan into the fire. He thought he'd be safe with David. For, to all outward eyes, this looked like the most stable kingdom in the entire Middle East. And yet he gets there, gets to spend one night with his family, and then all of this unfolds. Somebody wake me up. Somebody wake me up. This is a dream. It can't be happening. You ever have a day like that? And David again So much that is commendable about him. He gives this guy every which way to go back into Jerusalem. He he talks him into it. He tells him you need to do it. He does everything short of giving him an order. I mean, he gives him absolute freedom to say, David, you're right. Thanks for not holding this against me. I think I will take my family and my children that just escaped one slaughter over here uh, to deliver them from this particular slaughter. And uh, I think I'll be heading back to Jerusalem. And David gives him the room to do that and completely save face in doing it. David didn't want him to be feel like this was his responsibility. And then Etai answered the king and he said, one of the most beautiful expressions of commitment and loyalty in all of the Bible As the Lord lives, a Gentile, but a believer in Jehovah, as the Lord lives and as my Lord, the king lives, surely in whatever place my Lord, the king shall be, whether in death or life, even there also your servant will be. I commit to you whether it means life or death. God bless him. Men with principle. And so David said to Etai, go and cross over. And then Etai, the the Gittite, and all of his men, and all the little ones, entire families are now fleeing the city. Wives, children, everybody's clearing out who were with him. They crossed over. And all the country wept with a loud voice, and all the people crossed over. The king himself also crossed over the brook Kidron. Those of you who have been to Israel, you know the brook Kidron is right outside of the ancient city of David. They make their way over that brook. 
It's a dry brook at this time of the year, and all of the people crossed over toward the way of the wilderness, the way of, uh, of out into the Judean wilderness towards kind of the Dead Sea and, uh, and, and uh, uh, out there in order to escape. And then in terms of David's friends, there was Zadok also, uh, one of the priests, and all the Levites with him, and they came to David bearing the ark of the covenant of God. And they set down the ark of God and Abiathar, also a priest, went up until all the people had finished crossing over the city. So all of the priests, the Levites, the entire religious community chooses to side with David in all of this. So, again, they knew they knew him to be a flawed man. There's there's only one sinless in human history, and that's Jesus himself. But they knew that David sincerely loved the Lord. They knew his influence was an influence for righteousness in God and the nation of Israel. They knew they could never have a better king than this, no better human king than, than they had in David. And they would not have a better human king than David in their history. Jesus would come, but that, that's a different story. And so they express loyalty and they, and they choose to side with, with David here. They bring the Ark of the Covenant with them, which is the symbol of, of God's presence. They probably brought the Ark of the Covenant with them. They're, they're, they're leaving the city of Jerusalem. They're, they're carrying the Ark now. The Levites are out of there. Probably not because, obviously not that because they think that Absalom is going to do some damage to the Ark of the Covenant, but because they believe that uh, somehow David is going to need God's wisdom in what to do here. The ark represented the presence of God, and so they wanted that to be there as kind of a, you know, an expression that God is with us, God is close, and God will give us his wisdom. And so that's why they're, they're, they're carrying it along. And the king said to Zadok, carry the ark of God back into the city. It belongs in Jerusalem. It doesn't belong following me out into the wilderness. And if I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and show me both it and his dwelling place. It belongs in Jerusalem. Take it back into Jerusalem. And uh, for David, David, again, speaks of the intimacy of his relationship with the Lord. Uh, he didn't need a symbol of God's presence in his current need. Uh, he was absolutely confident in God's presence in his life. And so he didn't treat the Ark of the Covenant the way that it was treated by the religious community under Eli earlier in Israel's history, where it became kind of a good luck charm. And David says, I don't need any good luck charms. I know God personally. Take that back into uh, into Jerusalem. And God can do whatever he wants with me. But if he says uh, if he wants to bring me back into Jerusalem, uh, that's fine. He knows how to do that. Verse 26. But if he says thus, I have no delight in you. Here I am. Let him do with me as seems uh, good to him. And so uh, there are several pictures in this whole section that speak of David's surrender to the Lord. And it's just a beautiful peace that's here in David's life. He's right back to that shepherd boy 50 years earlier in his life. God can do whatever he wants to do with my life. He wants to bring me back and make me the king again. Blessed be the name of the Lord. If he doesn't bring me back and he doesn't do that and I die in this, blessed be the name of the Lord. These are miserable circumstances, times of betrayal and deep trial in our lives. But there are silver linings in it. I've already seen one of the silver linings is our friends who step up and stick with us in the middle of it. And another silver lining of it is it just brings us right back to us and God. Not about David being a king, not about his history, not about this, not about that. Everything gets so uncomplicated at a moment like this. God, you're my God. You put me in this position. I've served you here. You can put me back into it. You cannot put me back into it. That's entirely up to you. I can't carry the weight of it. I just surrender to you and I trust you to do what's right in your wisdom and your power and in your love. 
And a lot of times we move from the simplicity of that place in our relationship and our service to the Lord. And these bumps, these major bumps that occur, can occur in our service to the Lord, they just bring us back to that place of fresh surrender. Lord, my life is yours. You do whatever you want with it. And it is, that is a place of great, great peace. And the king also said to Zadok the priest, Are you not a seer? Return to the city in peace, and your two sons with you, Ahimaaz, your son, and Jonathan, the son of Abiathar. And see, I will wait in the plains of the wilderness until word comes from you to inform me. Now, David sends them back into the city, also in the hopes that they might discover more about exactly what's going on here. David has no idea how big this revolt is, how powerful it is, how powerful the alliances that uh, Absalom has. So he is desperately in need of what they call in the military intelligence. He needs intel. So he's completely in the dark. All he knows is that there's a, revol- a revolution has taken place. He is running for his life, but he doesn't know anything more than that. So he sends them back into the city in order to assess the situation, appraise it. How bad is this? And then you can send word to me. I'll wait at the edge of the Jordan River with the people. You can send word to us about how bad the situation uh, is. And so David uh, said that that's where he would wait until he found out, uh, you know, how big this thing was and how fast things were progressing. And therefore, Zadok and Abiathar, they carry the ark of God back to Jerusalem and they remained there. They obeyed David's order. And so David went up by the ascent of the Mount of Olives and he wept as he went up. Now they're making their way out of the Kidron Valley, up over the Mount of Olives, headed toward the Judean wilderness. He wept as he went up. It's such a sad uh, picture here. And, uh, and as he's weeping, he had, on, he had his head covered and he went barefoot. And all the people who were with him covered their heads and they went up weeping uh, as they went up. I mean, isn't it you, you just Nobody knows what a day will bring in, in life. You don't know what's going to happen from one day to the next. Praise the Lord, the Lord does. It can be in his will. I mean, it's just astonishing how much their lives have changed in just a handful of hours. And then as if things couldn't get any worse for David, they do. And then someone told David, saying, Ahithophel is among the, among the conspirators with Absalom. And when David hears this news, he doesn't begin to weigh this thing and, okay, gets out the yellow pad. Here's the advantages of that. Here's the disadvantages of it. Immediately, it provokes a prayer in his heart. And he immediately says, O Lord, I pray, turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. He knew he was in he, he didn't need to get a report from Abiathar and Zadok to know how bad things were. When he found out Ahithophel was on the, on the other side of him, he knew he was in deep, deep trouble. Because Ahithophel, as we're going to see a little bit later, so much we're going to see a little bit later tonight. But his counsel, nobody was, nobody was wiser than him. Nobody gave greater counsel than him. And here's Ahithophel now going to use his counsel against uh, uh, David. And so David just dreads what this could turn into. And so he immediately prayed to the Lord. And uh, thankfully, that's a prayer that the Lord is going to answer. He is going to turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. Now, it happened when David... It come to the top of the mountain, the Mount of Olives, where he worshipped God. There was Hushai, the archite, coming to meet him with his robe turned and dust on his head. So again, these friends are keep popping up to show their loyalty. And it's a dangerous thing. Here is this old friend. And he's got dust in it. He's torn his robe. He's got dust in his head. In other words, he's given an outward sign of his mourning over the actions of Absalom and the overthrow of David. It was so dangerous to do that. 
What if he got captured and Absalom looks and says, what is this signs of mourning on the day of my overthrow of, of Israel? Could have meant his execution. Again, a principled man here making a stand. And David said to him, if you go on with me, you'll become a burden to me. Uh, Hushai is an old man at this point. David says, I can't, I, I can't be hauling you out over the wilderness. I'm 60 and feel like 85. You're probably 80 and feel like 125. So you're not going to be much help fleeing with us. And so you're going to become a burden to me. But if you return to the city and say to Absalom, I will be your servant, O king, as I was your father's servant previously, so I will now also be your servant, then you may defeat the counsel of Ahithophel for me. And this is fascinating because David takes and he prays this prayer for God to defeat the counsel of Ahithophel. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, here comes Hushai. And David sees the answer to his prayer immediately and uh, recognizes it and now is going to uh, use him to overthrow the council of Ahithophel. So David's starting to get his bearings a little bit here, and he's beginning to resist these, uh, all of these uh, events. And so uh, the idea was that Hushai would return to Jerusalem and uh, pretend to be loyal to Absalom while actually functioning as a spy uh, for David. And his task was very, very simple. Whatever Ahithophel says, you say the opposite. Because we're going to need Absalom to do the opposite of whatever Ahithophel uh, would say. Because if they follow Ahithophel's counsel, we're toast out here. And then he said to him, um, and do you not have Zadok and Abiathar, the priests, uh, with you there? Therefore, it will be that whatever you hear from the king's house, you shall tell it to Zadok and Abiathar, the priests. So he begins to let him know that he's got moles, other moles, kind of in, uh, in Jerusalem that have remained there, who's safe to make contact with and to transfer information through. And indeed, they are there with, uh, uh, they have there with them their two sons, uh, Ahimaaz, uh, Zadok's son, and Jonathan, Abiathar's son. And by them you shall send me everything that you hear. Make them the messengers uh, for the information. And so Hushai, David's friend, went into the city. And as he returned to the city, Absalom also then uh, came into uh, Jerusalem. And so here is, uh, here is David, uh, uh, Absalom, uh, officially coming from Hebron, now entering into the city of Jerusalem, and he takes firm control of it at this point. Now, when David was a little past the top of the mountain, there was Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth. And remember all the way back in uh, chapter 9 of Second Samuel, Mephibosheth was the son of Jonathan. David wanted to do something good to the household of, uh, of Saul, of Jonathan, and so he gave uh, Mephibosheth, all of the land that belonged to Saul, called Mephibosheth. He was lame in his feet to sit at the king's table and then made Ziba and his family and servants the servant of Mephibosheth. So that's, that's who we've got here. So Ziba, who was the servant of Mephibosheth, he comes out to meet David very early in his time of fl fleeing from the city. And he met with him with a couple of saddled donkeys and on them were 200 loaves of bread, 100 clusters of raisins, 100 summer fruits, and a skin of wine. Now remember, David is fleeing with a very large group of people that are count, numbered in the hundreds, including women and children. And they haven't, had, they haven't had time to plan for this. There's no power bars or cliff bars or anything like this that they uh, can take. No five-hour energy or anything like that. not recommending that, by the way. Certainly not for some of you. You're like a pogo stick jumping around. I've never had it. I've just seen the commercial. Listen, I just know I don't need that. I don't need any help with that kind of stuff. All right, enough about my problems. But anyway, so they, they head out, and, and they don't have any food. And so Ziba recognizes food is going to be especially appreciated. And so the king said to Ziba, 
What do you mean uh, with these? What are you communicating? And Ziba said, the donkeys are for the king's household to ride on the women and the bread and the summer fruit for the young men to eat and the wine for those who are faint in the wilderness to drink. It's it's to take care of you in your flight. Now, this represented a considerable risk on the part of Ziba because he is aligning. And interestingly enough, he's a descendant of Saul. But he is showing loyalty toward David at a very vulnerable time in in doing so. But as we're going to find out with Ziba, he doesn't do it out of principle. He does it because he's he's a manipulator. He's a con man. He's a gambler. So he looks at this situation and he looks and says, all right, who do I think is going to win this power struggle? Do I think Absalom's going to win or do I think that David is going to win? And so which side do I want to show loyalty to so that when the person I think is going to win ultimately wins, I will secure a position of power and and wealth for my loyalty. And so he looks at the situation and he he gambles that David is ultimately going to win in this. And uh, but it's it's all selfish. He is. Well, he's going to slander uh, Mephibosheth here and he kind of gets away with it a, a little bit here. But this is what he's up to. And so the king said to him, where is your master's son? Where's Mephibosheth? You've come out to deliver this. Where is uh, the one that I've given a seat at my table? And Ziba said to the king, indeed, he's staying in Jerusalem. For he said, today, the house of Israel will restore the kingdom of my father to me. So he slanders Mephibosheth, says Mephibosheth didn't come out to bring you anything because he's convinced that Absalom has overthrown you to return the kingdom back to King Saul. Well, that's absolutely nutty in terms of of a theory that certainly doesn't nobody knows anything about Absalom that would say something like that. And again, as we'll see, this was, uh, you know, patently false, this this accusation. But this is the accusation that he makes against Mephibosheth. David, um, very emotional, probably every expression of loyalty to him was kind of overwhelming and deeply appreciated. And so without really, you know, praying about it and thinking it through and getting both sides of the story, the king said to Ziba, here, all that belongs to Mephibosheth is yours. And Ziba said, I humbly bow before you that I may find favor in your sight, uh, O uh, Lord, uh, my king. Now, the book of Proverbs says that the first one, Uh, To plead his cause seems right until his neighbor comes and examines him. And so this is all going to turn around a little bit later. And then when now when King David came to Bahurim, there was a man from the family of the house of Saul uh, whose name was Shimei. Never name your son Shimei. Uh, He was the son of Gera uh, coming out from there and he came out cursing continuously as he came. News came very swiftly, spread through the land that this great revolt had taken place. And Shimei can't wait to find David fleeing the city and then uh, begin to curse him uh, as he was fleeing uh, with his family. And so here he comes out. It's the kind of guy that, uh, and this happens all the time too, He's he's less noble than Absalom. At least Absalom is willing to take his rebellion, you know, right out in, you know, in front and initiated. I mean, he hated his father. He disliked his father. He didn't agree with his father enough to do this whole thing ultimately out in the open, though there was uh, deceit involved in it. Shimei is the kind of guy who waits for someone else to lead the rebellion, doesn't have enough uh, gumption of his own to do it, but once somebody else has done it, he's eager to pile on. And so that's, uh, that's exactly what, what he does. And he's, he's bitter over God's elevation of David as king over the house uh, of Saul. God's abandoning the house of Saul, the lineage of Saul, as the uh, kings of, of Israel. And so he comes out. There's cowardice here. And, uh, but he's going to let his bitter heart be made, uh, made know, known here. And so he starts to run along. We're going to see a little bit later, a couple of verses down, 
there's a ravine between David and all of his very, very brave, experienced soldiers and Shimei over here who's throwing uh, curses at him and ultimately he's going to throw rocks at him. He's not stupid. He wants to, if somebody comes after him, he wants to be able to flee. So he's cursing uh, David. Now, what's happening here is it isn't so much that Shimei is, you know, merely uh, insulting David or swearing, you know, using swear words at him and, you know, foul mouth and all of that. Shimei was asking God to destroy David. That's what he was calling on. May God destroy you, David. This is absolutely forbidden in the law of Moses. Exodus chapter 22, verse 28. You shall not revile God nor curse a ruler of your people, God had said to the children of Israel. Why would he say that? The reason God gave that kind of special protection to the kings is that leadership isn't an easy position. There's always going to be people that don't agree with you in any decision that you make. And so this was a, 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 a way of protecting leadership when God called them into that you know, difficult kind of task. And to be a king was a difficult task. Now, Shimei, he's, he, this is what happens when you get angry. You start with words, and then pretty soon you pull out a gun. He didn't have a gun. So he starts throwing stones. He gets, this all starts to escalate. He starts throwing stones at David and all the servants of King David and all the people and all the mighty men who were on his right hand and on his left. So now he starts to throw rocks. And you say, oh, man, I hate people that throw rocks. It means a little bit more in the, in the Jewish culture and in the ancient world. This is an offense. This is a, a, a high offense. This is intended to disgrace David, to humiliate David. In the ancient world, you threw rocks at dogs. And in the ancient world, they didn't spend like $30 billion a year for their pets. I'm not saying you can't take your pet to the vet and feed them whatever you want to feed them and all that kind of They viewed dogs in a different way in the ancient world. They ran in packs and they were trouble. So when you saw dogs, you, you didn't particularly like them. And if you wanted to get rid of them, you would just throw rocks at them to make them run down the alley. That's what he's doing here. David, you and your men, the whole lot of you, you're just a bunch of dogs. And he's throwing rocks at them, intent to insult, uh, insult them. And then he goes on and escalates his verbal abuse and uh, 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 Verse 7, and Shimei said thus when he cursed, come out, come out, you bloodthirsty man, you rogue. The Lord has brought uh, upon you all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. This is because you, you know, took the place of Saul and his lineage. And so the Lord has done this. He's the one that's humbling you here. The Lord has delivered the kingdom into the hand of Absalom, your son. So now you are caught in your own evil because you are a bloodthirsty man. Calls him a rogue. It literally in the Hebrew, it means a son of Belial. He says, get out of here, you son of the devil. And he, and he begins to say, this is all God's doing, David. This is what God is doing to you because of what you did to, to the lineage of Saul. It's absolutely untrue. David could not have been kinder than he was. To the descendants of Saul. We must be very careful as Christians to never ascribe any event to God that we do not know whether God had a part in it or not. Every time there's an earthquake, some Christian leader jumps up. And says it's a judgment of God. And they don't know anything of the sort. Every time there's some kind of a financial this or a turmoil here or this, somebody jumps up and says, this is God's judgment on this. Fine if we know it to be true, but we're dragging God's reputation into something which we shouldn't do unless we know that God is actually a part of it. God had nothing to do with this rebellion of Absalom against uh, David. 
I remember, when did we have the big fires in California? Was it last summer or the summer before? The summer before. You remember that? Our next door neighbors, Bill and Betty, I don't know if they're here tonight, but they were out of town during those few days, and they came back after it had eased up like 80%. They came back, and it was still, like, chokingly dense. I mean, that was wild. And here people are saying, you know, this is God's judgment on California. So the crazy thing is, is that these fires start in the most liberal, ungodly section of California, the Bay Area, And the wind blows it into the valley, the most conservative, godly, righteous section of California, and we're getting choked on it. So God either wasn't a part of that or he just got terrible, terrible aim. But these are the these are the kind of hot water that we get ourselves in when, you know, you make these kind of assertions. And so this is what he does. And it's completely false. And Abishai, and here's loyalty uh, gone wild. Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, said to the king, "Uh, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Please. So he's a a violent man, but he's polite. (laughs) He said, Please, let me go over and take off his head. Not remove an arm and a leg or thrust him through. Let me bring his head back to you. So this is what, so again, I mean, both for Joab and also for Abishai, the sword was the answer to everything. But again, great loyalty. Abishai is as loyal to David as Shimei is to Absalom. And so, but he's very misguided, which it gives us another important lesson here. It is so important when we are in the middle of a crisis like this and people are doing wrong to you and people are slandering you to your face, behind your back, all that kind of stuff. The counsel you have to be the most careful of is the counsel that comes from the people that love you the most and are the most loyal to you because they feel the pain. They understand what you're going through. They know you. And so this is a, a, a great temptation here. And David is going to resist it. And David said, what have I to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah? Abishai, if I command you to go over and take off his head because he's calling me a bloodthirsty man, you will simply confirm his accusation. Now, how helpful are you going to be to me in this? So, it made sense. Let him curse, because the Lord has said to him, Curse David. And who then shall say, Why have you done so? David said to Abishai and to all of his servants, See how my own son who came from my body seeks my life, and I don't do anything about it. How much more now may this Benjamite Do this smaller thing to me. Let him alone. Let him curse. For so the Lord has ordered him. And it may be that the Lord will look on my affliction. And that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing this day. And so maybe God will uh, repay the cursing with good. And so David and his men went along the road. Shimei went along on the hillside opposite him. He wasn't that dumb. And he cursed as he went continued to throw stones at him, kicked up dust. Now the king and all the people who were with him became weary, and so they refreshed themselves uh, there. And so all of this going on. And David, again, we see this beautiful, and again, this is the second of, uh, uh, you know, two or three in this whole account here of, of just fresh surrender on David's part. It's a terrible, terrible, difficult trial that he's in, but as each of these things hit, He just freshly surrenders it to the Lord. Lord, you're in charge here. You're in charge of what's going on here. You know that all these accusations that Shimei is making against me are wrong. 
and I can't change any of that. You've got to take care of that or it's not going to get taken care of. And it is one of the most beautiful experiences in a time when a servant of the Lord or any Christian is being terribly and unjustly slandered by others. Where you just hit the point after it's just like, man, this hurts so much. And then the next step that you take is you just look to the Lord and you say, Lord, you know the truth. You know what everybody is believing out there isn't the truth about it. And you're the one that's going to have to bring the truth about this situation out to the front. And there is something that happens between a person and God in that moment that is very, very sweet in that surrender. And it doesn't make the whole trial worth it, but it's, it's a sweet spot in that, in that trial. And God is going to do that for David. The Bible promised, God promises to bring forth our righteousness, our rightness in a situation where we're being accused of wrongdoing and, uh, and falsely accused. God promises that before all is said and done, whether on this side of heaven or in heaven itself, I don't know, that he will bring forth our righteousness and make it as plain as the sun at noonday in the Middle East. And it burns hot in the Middle East and bright. God is faithful to do it. And David surrenders here in, in all of this. And meanwhile, Absalom and all of the people, the men of Israel, they came to Jerusalem and Ahithophel was with him. Does your watch say what my clock says up here? We're going to stop right there at verse 14. We'll pick it up in verse 15. It's actually a very, very good uh, place to stop. Um, it doesn't mean that we moved fast enough tonight, but we... We did what we did, but it's a great place because now a whole new uh, series of events occurs here uh, as, as things uh, progress. But I'll tell you, this is where we live. It's not just David and uh, God's people 3,000 years ago. This is where we live even to this day. Such valuable, valuable lessons for our lives. Let's stay.